Hello and welcome back. I'm Maria Archibald, and this is Sustain, a podcast about environmental, social, and economic justice. Today I chat with Dr. Jory Lerbach, a recent graduate of the University of Utah with her PhD in geology and a current postdoc fellow at UCLA. Dr. Lerbach researches the effect of climate change on groundwater and advocates for equity and inclusion in the scientific community. I think there's a lot of narrative about diversity makes us better. And I think that in a lot of ways it does, but how we measure diversity and how we measure success is the problem. And so when we measure success in academia by seeing how many citations you get and how big of a network you have and how much prestige you hold with your colleague, that's all has a really strong undercurrent of all of these different societal issues, including racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-disability bias. Stay tuned to learn more as we discuss everything from groundwater chemistry to equity and justice. I am a postdoc at UCLA in the Department of Earth, Planetary, and Space Sciences, an affiliate of the Center for Diverse Leadership in STEM program there. And I am a recent graduate with my PhD from the University of Utah's Department of Geology, where I also got my certificate in interdisciplinary sustainability from the Global Change and Sustainability Center. I study how groundwater responds to climate change. And so what I did at Utah was studying modern groundwaters. And so this postdoc at UCLA is trying to really focus on how has groundwater in the past responded to past climate change in the hopes that we can use that knowledge to predict how groundwater is going to change in response to modern climate changes. How did you become interested in studying geology and specifically groundwater? So I grew up in Southern California and for my whole life, everyone is talking about water and the drought and how we need to conserve water. And I think it, has a lot of confusing messages sometimes because living in an urban area, how much is turning off the sink um, in the middle of washing dishes do when there's golf courses all around? The dialogue everywhere was just like, how do we how do we get clean water? How do we have water for what we need to do? Um, and it just is a very complicated social picture. And I went to college, my undergrad, thinking that I was going to get into environmental studies and think about policy and politics. So I went to a liberal arts college and they have you take like introductory courses to all sorts of different subjects. And one of those was a intro to environmental studies and environmental science. And it turned out that I really enjoyed doing the science part of it. And because it was clear that I actually enjoyed that, I ended up getting an internship for the next summer where I got paid to work outside and um, go to Alaska and count leaf fossils and how leaves responded to to like different climates um, all over the world. And so that's just sort of put me on this path of like, I'm interested in water, I'm interested in like water and sustainability, but I got into the science part of it, the earth sciences sort of on accident, which I think is not uncommon for earth scientists, but because there's so little early education earth science, but once you get introduced to it, it is really an awesome 
way to think about very complicated systems with all sorts of like you can be in biology and chemistry and um, rock physics all at once. So that's sort of where I've found myself feeling like I could contribute to society in terms of water sustainability and access. Dr. Lerbeck has spent the last several years studying groundwater chemistry in the Bonneville Basin near Salt Lake City, Utah. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to your research findings on that or, or what the ongoing research kind of is showing you um, and what that research might mean and what it might look like for the future of this area. Yeah, so I study groundwater chemistry around the Bonneville salt flats in particular. Um, that's where my lab, Brenda Bowen's lab, focuses the research. Um, and in particular, I study the ages of groundwater that is coming out at springs on and around the salt flats. And so by age, I'm thinking about how long the water that is coming out has, how long is it has been underground and how long the water itself, since it fell as rain, how long it's been underground can tell us a little bit about how long that water has taken to interact with the rocks and dissolve a little bit of the rock at a time and eventually come out at the Bonneville salt flats and deposit that little bit of rock, which is now salt. And so because it's a closed basin where water comes in but doesn't leave um, the Bonneville basin, that's where the salt uh, water just evaporates, leaving these big salt pans, which are interesting in, uh, for mining industries, racing industries, and Instagram more recently. And so there's a lot of uh, people who appreciate the salt. And I think that's something that we as scientists have not historically done a really good job at is including the voices of other stakeholders, such as the indigenous peoples, um, the confederated tribes of the Goshu are about 30 miles away in the Deep Creek Reservation. And I think that's something that I'm interested in engaging more with and developing tribal partnerships to have more of a voice of how management of these sorts of natural resources go and to think more holistically about who has a voice in these management decisions. In academia, there can be a misunderstanding that hard physical sciences and environmental justice are separate and unrelated disciplines. But Dr. Lerbach has brought the two together, using her hydrological knowledge and research towards sustainability and environmental justice initiatives. I'm just wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about how your work supports environmental justice and why you think it's important to bring um, together the physical sciences and environmental justice initiatives. You know, groundwater and water resources are a good example of how traditional Western sciences can be used better to support these complicated social landscapes, because it's not just the ecosystem that needs stewardship or, and not that scientists are the only ones who should be able to do that. Um, and I think having a little bit of introspection of we are scientists and we are part of this complex social landscape and including the environment as one of those stakeholders, if we do separate that from, from ourselves as, as humans, I think that that's 
a really important direction for for the hard sciences to go down. And you know, I was an intern for about a year at the U.S. Geological Survey's Water Science Center during my PhD, and it was really interesting to work with them on navigating water rights conflicts. People would go and say, this party is wants to pump a lot of groundwater from their wells, and we are worried that that's going to dry up our wells or impact water quality. And to go out with them and sample people's wells and talk to real people who use the water, and they know so much about the water that like, you know, we're looking at the chemistry on on a screen back in the office, um, but they know like how fast the well recovers when it's pumped. And they like have noticed when pumping from one well affects their other wells. And so I think engaging, engaging like that with community members who know so much about the water and helping to sort of build up that knowledge rather than going to them with this brand new knowledge of like you or what we package as brand new knowledge. Like you knew nothing before about your groundwater, but now we are telling you how it is um, when they really know so much already. And I think approaching it in like a more collaborative way and really thinking about how science can play a role in navigating conflict, but also recognizing that science isn't always unbiased and who it, it includes in the people who are writing the report versus who the people are that we're trying to serve. Like there's always going to be sort of cultural differences or not always going to be, there doesn't have to be. And I think that that's something that science still needs to work on in like diversifying and just being more representative of stakeholders who actually use the water that we're studying. Seeing ourselves as helpers to navigate conflict is what I came away from that internship with and something that I wanted to do more of and recognize that it is a very like delicate social situation and not just like we go get numbers and we turn that numbers into knowledge and um, send that out. Like it's much more of a process of developing reciprocal, respectful and responsible relationships. Yeah, it's my understanding that you've also used your work and and your platform to talk about issues of diversity and equity and inclusion. And so I'm wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about how you've done this and um, what you might recommend to other scientists or physical scientists specifically who are interested in similar social issues. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of um, was is that while I was at Utah, I and a couple other of the graduate students made a student-led organization called Inclusive Earth. And we were in the college of, we, I mean, Inclusive Earth still is there. And so if you're another scientist and at the U, go join that. We want to sort of build community between scientists beyond just scientific collaborations. And we wanna build a community of support, especially to make a platform um, for marginalized folks to connect and empower people to imagine what they would want for science, both the scientific community and the process of doing science and making science make a change in the wider world and making sure that 
Inclusive Earth is a platform for people to ask what they need. Um, and if that's a way for people to complain loudly about whatever is bothering them, I think that that's an important place to at least have that we didn't really see when we got here and a place to be loud and be heard too. So I think a lot of, there's so many good initiatives and what we found with Inclusive Earth is that we really didn't want to keep reinventing things, but in focusing on community within the sciences with a focus on equity and justice for not just an affinity group, but for anyone that just even wanted to to engage with these sort of ideas and questions more, especially in the sciences, was needed. Beyond beyond inclusive earth, um, you know, I did a lot of data analysis on um, bias in STEM and um, particularly scholarly publishing. Um, and so I've written a couple of articles about whether, uh, so showing that women are not invited to peer review or that racially diverse teams end up with fewer citations and pointing that out as a problem. And I think that, you know, I that was sort of passion projects, like I had access to the data from a former job. Um, and I think that, you know, doing the data analysis can reveal issues that maybe we weren't tracking before, even though the data are showing that there, yes, there are problems with the process of doing science and disseminating ideas. And I think like whether there's a data analysis or not, we can be kind of proactive in addressing that. Like think about, okay, well, we know racism exists. Let's try to like empower and uplift like diverse voices and think about how, how we can proactively um, engage with those sorts of issues in how we conduct science rather than waiting until a data analysis shows, okay, yes, this is a problem. Now we can do anything about it. Because you could have used that whole time to be brainstorming solutions. I think there's a lot of narrative about diversity makes us better. And I think that in a lot of ways it does, but how we measure diversity and how we measure success is the problem. And so when we measure success in academia by seeing how many citations you get and how big of a network you have and how much prestige you hold with your colleague, that's all has a really strong undercurrent of all of these different societal issues, including racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-disability bias. There's all this stuff going on and how we simplify success, quote unquote, in, in these science and academic spaces really needs to be recognized in this in this way. What does a sustainable future look like to you? A few things come to mind with thinking about a sustainable future is an equitable future, one that focuses on the process of change and reciprocity in community and communication. You know, I think a sustainable future has a lot of different solutions, but focusing on inclusion in making those changes is the only way that we're going to have something that 
works. You know, we can't dictate an answer. And I think that as scientists, we're really taught that like there is an answer. We can we can engineer our way out of this. And if you're not fully right, then you're wrong. And but really making sure that we're good at communicating and recognizing that even if someone proposed something that's not a perfect answer, there was a lot of good things in that and pulling that in rather than just saying that won't work. Um, and then listing the reasons why that won't work. I think that having a more positive and constructive and relationship oriented, sustainable action plan is really important. And maybe that's not what the, the future looks like. And I think that there is no one sustainable future. It's always going to be responding to different changes. And in that way, it's a resilient future. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about the word resilience um, and because in sustainability literature resilience is used a lot um, and in all like psychology uses it uh, systems like electrical grid management uses resilient and I think that there's a lot of ways that it can be used sort of irresponsibly. Resilient infrastructure can be sort of propagating capitalist structures where if you have money, you can have a more resilient uh, electrical grid, but if you don't have money, then you can't have that. And like, that's not okay. So resilience really has to go along with justice. You want to be able to adapt, but you also don't want to let climate change decimate entire coastal communities, ones that aren't rich and able to fly away. That's not, in my opinion resilient as a future when you use resilience you really have to make sure that you're emphasizing equity and justice in that why did someone have to be resilient because you made them mm -hmm. and yeah i think resilience when especially when talking about like social social issues like that is fully a way to not, not take systemic responsibility resilience is so often used in diversity initiatives and it's really frustrating to hear like, oh, we're gonna teach you how to be more resilient, not teach your colleagues how to not be mean. You can't tell someone to be resilient without also recognizing that you're making a harmful condition that they have to bounce back from. What would you call upon the sustainability and environmental movements to do in order to reach this vision for a sustainable future? Focusing on the process of change and I think that there's a lot of literature on this, like on the theory of change and also change theory, which are related but different. Um, but thinking about a lot how culture needs to change before policy changes can really take effect and making sure that those processes are inclusive and equitable and justice oriented and thinking about Risk taking responsibility for our own collective actions and inactions. So only in that way can can real change be made going forward. Making collective change means you need to develop a lot of relationships and those need to be respectful and based in trust and without taking responsibility, you can't really do that. And so thinking about the process of change and also 
designing sort of the future that you want to see so that you have something to keep in mind. And I'm, I'm a big lover of science fiction. And so I think that that's what I think about when I think about designing the future that you want to change. Like nothing has been invented that wasn't imagined first. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you thought. You're listening to Sustain, a podcast by the University of Utah Sustainability Office. For monthly episodes, subscribe to Sustain on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To learn more about our work, visit sustainability.utah.edu or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sustainable U of U. Interviews and editing of this podcast are done by me, Maria Archbald, a graduate student in the University of Utah's Environmental Humanities program and a graduate assistant in the Sustainability Office. The music in this podcast was written and performed by Yusuf Farah. Special thanks to my brother, Daniel Archibald, for his sound editing support.